Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. This is Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. We're the crown jewel of AM Radio. And let me urge you to take a moment to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC Radio app right now so you don't miss any of the outstanding programming that we have here at 77 WABC. I'm talking about Larry Kudlow on Saturdays the architect of America's economic resurgence under President Donald Trump, or my good friend Frank Morano on the other side of midnight. If you're a night owl, you don't want to miss that. Then there's Katz and Cosby, John Katzmatidis and Rita Cosby, who reach you every day at 5 to break down that day's news. And their Sunday morning program is a never miss if you want to set the day as to what's going on in America. Today on the Roger Stone Show, I want to focus on the dangers of artificial intelligence. If you're not familiar with artificial intelligence or what they call AI, well, you should be because I think you're going to see a lot of it coming up in the 2024 election. You see, using artificial intelligence, any person can take a seven-second snippet of your voice or your imagery and they can make an audio or, or a video that is undetectable and sounds or looks exactly like you but isn't you at all. In other words, they can put words in your mouth. I know this because, well, it just happened to me. Uh, a far-left website called Mediaite contacted me 10 days ago and said that they had an audio recording in which they alleged that I had actually threatened the lives of two Democratic congressmen. I knew that I had never said or done any such thing. They wanted me to comment uh, on an audio that they wouldn't play for me, uh, and they refused to post. Needless to say, I said, since I've never said any of those things, any audio that was produced would have to have been fabricated with the use of AI. Roughly a week later, they posted an audio, which they claimed was me, had extraordinary background noise, like it was uh, recorded in a restaurant, uh, and uh, it, it was shocking, but it was also phony. Uh, I used uh, no less than two uh, readily available AI detector programs, 
to immediately tell me, in one case, they said there was a 92.80 chance uh, that this was fraudulent, uh, AI created. Uh, in the other case, the, the AI detection software I used, by the way, anyone can find these online, showed me that there was uh, an 86% chance, roughly, uh, that uh, this was likely created with AI. Yesterday, I, I went out and retained one of the foremost experts in the country, uh, a man who literally spends his entire life analyzing these audios, uh, and uh, he was a little expensive, to be honest with you. I had to retain him, and there's uh, confidentiality at this juncture, uh, because this may have to be used in some future proceeding, uh, but he told me that there were five basic criteria and that this particular audio not only had been fabricated, uh, but would never be admissible in a court of law. What's disappointing to me, I guess, is that, well, CNN, MSNBC, The Guardian, Salon, uh, The Daily Beast, uh, even the, the vaunted New York Times immediately jump to the conclusion uh, that this audio was genuine. Folks, it is not. Uh, and uh, it is reported that these two congressmen uh, complained to both the Capitol Hill Police uh, and the FBI. Uh, this is splashed all over. Uh, the death threats to me and my family have, of course, once again skyrocketed. But let me say that any honest investigation is going to ultimately prove that I never said anything of the kind. Buckle your seatbelts for this kind of abuse of artificial intelligence because uh, you're going to see a lot of it in politics this year terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about this uh, only recently. Meanwhile, I, I uh, had tremendous reaction to my uh, list of the best and worst dressed people uh, in the world. This is a tradition that you may recall uh, I adopted from the late Mr. Blackwell. Mr. Blackwell was a Hollywood-based syndicated columnist and designer uh, who for 48 years published this list. Uh, the list was uh, talked about on uh, Katz uh, and Cosby uh, and uh, was amazing the reaction. Putting together such a list is difficult, uh, but I bring it up now to tell you, well, I'm starting to collect names and suggestions for next year's list. I had two uh, of the folks here uh, on WABC, uh, Larry Kudlow, uh, extremely well-dressed gentleman. He's actually in our lifetime achievement category. And then, of course, there is a Greg Kelly, uh, both of them extremely well turned out once again on my international best dressed list. If you know somebody in any walk of life, could be uh, uh, entertainment, could be athletics, could be business, doesn't have to be a celebrity, by the way, who you think ought to be considered for 
next year's list, you can email that to me at stoneonstyle at stonezone.com. That's stoneonstyle at stonezone.com. Let me say that these choices are non-political, they're non-ideological, and, uh, well, one guy out in Las Vegas actually tried to bribe his way on the list. No, there is no payola uh, allowed. Uh, I will not accept a gratuity to put you on the list. So if you know of someone or you see someone in the media, see someone on TV or cable or in the newspaper who you think ought to be on the list, uh, send me uh, an email, stoneonstyle at stonezone.com, and we'll consider them. This is a lot of fun. Publishes on New Year's Day, so we've got plenty of time. But I'm grateful for a number of my colleagues here at WABC, John Katzmatidis and Rita Cosby, also Greg Kelly, segments on the list. Well, as Mel Brooks said in the movie History of the World Part 1, politics, 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 politics. And I guess that's why people tune in to the Roger Stone show. Uh, So uh, let's talk about it. Last Sunday, um, I'm happy to say that I called the Iowa caucuses almost exactly on the money. Uh, I I was actually a a little low in the sense that I thought President Donald Trump, who had built without question the single best, single best organized, well-oiled voter identification and turnout apparatus in the history of the Iowa caucuses was going to win. Win, by the way, is defined as coming in first. In other words, getting more votes than the other candidates. Up until uh, the caucuses this past Monday night, the high water mark came in 1988 when my old boss, Senator Bob Dole of neighboring Kansas, one of the greatest men of the 20th century, by the way, would have made a truly great president, uh, had won the Iowa caucuses by 12.5%. Donald Trump actually tripled that margin. Uh, The gap between he and second-place finisher, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, was almost 30 points. Uh, And then directly on DeSantis's heels was Nikki Haley. Now, normally, the second-place finisher uh, in the Iowa caucuses uh, would get some momentum going into the New Hampshire primary. That doesn't appear to be the case. Actually, the very latest poll, a Boston Globe uh, Suffolk uh, University poll, shows Florida Governor Ron DeSantis actually at 5%, with Nikki Haley around 34%, uh, and President Donald Trump once again at the 50% mark. This is looking to be a run of the table for President Donald Trump uh, in his, some would have to say, improbable comeback bid. I mean, normally 
when a candidate for federal office uh, is charged in multiple jurisdictions uh, with crimes, well, their campaign money dries up, uh, their voter support drops up, and they're pretty soon out of the race. That's the exact opposite of what has happened here. Uh, but I, I remind people, there was a time when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was leading Donald Trump in the national Republican presidential preference polls. He was leading in New Hampshire. He was leading in Iowa. He was leading in Florida, the state they both share. Uh, I have never really seen anything uh, either like the upward trajectory of uh, Donald Trump's campaign where it can de de be demonstrably proven uh, with each indictment and each charge, whether it is in Florida pertaining to the documents case uh, or whether it is in Fulton County, Georgia, where it pertains uh, to the outcome of the Georgia election and Fannie Willis, uh, a Fulton County local prosecutor whose campaigns were funded by George Soros, has claimed that Trump knew that he lost the Georgia election and conspired with others to seat a, uh, an alternative slate of electors in that state, or whether it is in Washington, D.C., uh, where special counsel Jack Smith has specifically not charged Donald Trump with insurrection, uh, but instead has charged him with knowingly uh, realizing he had lost the election and conspiring uh, with others to uh, hold on to power. Uh, and then, of course, you have these incredible ongoing uh, civil litigations uh, in New York City, where once again, uh, Donald Trump uh, is sued by this woman, E. Jean Carroll, uh, for defamation. Uh, she actually won a judgment uh, against him for defamation. She claims uh, many years ago that she was sexually assaulted uh, in the dressing room at Bergdorf's. Uh, and although she seems to be pretty slim on details, uh, it's not surprising to me uh, that uh, she uh, won a Manhattan trial. Uh, the president now heads to New Hampshire with an extraordinary head of steam, but just an examination of his schedule really explains what this strategy of lawfare is all about. In other words, President Trump won the Iowa caucuses. By the way, getting 51% of the vote, that's historic. Because Ron DeSantis came in second and uh, not Nikki Haley, uh, Nikki Haley uh, did not get the uh, media ride that I expected she would get, but she got quite a media ride. But then Trump had to fly late at night from Iowa to New York, landing at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, appear in court in New York City the next morning, fly back to New Hampshire for a rally, ironically, a rally in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, which uh, I had actually arranged in 1988 
uh, when Donald Trump first got the presidential itch uh, to get the Portsmouth County Chamber of Commerce to uh, issue an invitation to Donald Trump to uh, speak to a luncheon event uh, many, many years ago, uh, then leave the Portsmouth rally and fly back to New York City to uh, appear in court yet again, and then fly back to New Hampshire for yet another rally. It's very clear now that Ron DeSantis has dropped to 5% in the polls. That's right, 5% in the polls in New Hampshire, a state in which he once briefly led. I'm not sure what's going through the governor's mind. He has, by the way, burned through $150 million for his presidential campaign. But the flavor of the month uh, in New Hampshire uh, is not Governor Ron DeSantis, but in fact, uh, Nikki Haley. The very latest polls show uh, that the president, again, uh, around the 50% mark, I'm taking the real clear politics daily average as opposed to looking at any one particular poll, which I think is the way to realistically do this, uh, with Nikki Haley at 34. So, it, it, and as I said, Governor Ron DeSantis at five. You have to wonder how long Governor DeSantis is going to stay in this race. Uh, but it is instructive that New Hampshire, other than South Carolina, uh, is one of the few states in the country where non-Republicans can vote in the upcoming Republican primary. That primary, by the way, is this coming Tuesday. Uh, and that would, uh, I think, create some drama. All of the polls show that President Donald Trump, among Republicans, is actually in the mid-60s, uh, and Nikki Haley is in the mid-20s. But among independents who have no Democratic Party to uh, distract them, because the Democratic National Committee uh, has essentially... Uh, stripped uh, both the Iowa caucuses first and then the uh, the New Hampshire primary of their delegates. So there is no uh, New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary. By the way, in that state, the presidential primary is not only mandated by law, but it is also mandated by state law to be first in the nation. That means if some other state moved ahead of New Hampshire, uh, let's say to January 1st, just theoretically, by law, the presidential primary would have to be held the year before the presidential election. In any event, uh, what you see today is a massive effort uh, by the supporters uh, of Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador, to drag independents uh, who aren't have uh, don't have any distraction of a possible Democratic primary to vote in to vote in this Republican contest. That's the only thing that makes a New Hampshire even potentially competitive. My prediction, uh, you can write it down now, folks. Uh, it is a uh, a solid double digit win 
by Donald Trump uh, over Nikki Haley, and then the contest will go to South Carolina. Now, South Carolina is a state where anyone can vote in any primary, meaning voters in South Carolina don't register by party, uh, and the Republican or Democratic primary, the first state that is holding a Democratic preferential primary in which President Joe Biden uh, is a candidate, uh, voters can vote in any or either primary. They can actually switch back uh, and forth. If you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC, uh, and we're breaking down the, well, the real reason you come here. I, I love to talk news, history, uh, politics, uh, style, uh, but uh, we've got a great lineup for you today. Former New York City police officer Sal Greco joins us to talk about the ongoing crisis among uh, uh, regarding illegal migrants in New York City and the allegations of corruption that are swirling around the administration of Mayor Eric Adams, former Congressman Chris Collins, uh, whose life seems to be on a parallel track with Donald Trump. He was a distinguished and respected uh, member of Congress uh, who was forced to resign after being reelected under a cloud charged, I think, unjustly with insider trading. In fact, he's going to tell you that he never made an illegal penny, uh, but uh, the victim of a politically motivated witch hunt. He was one of our very first guests here on The Roger Stone Show, and recently there was a terrific long profile on his comeback and redemption in The Washington Post, so I wanted to have... Chris Collins uh, back on, and then Doug Kaplan, one of the country's leading pollsters, going to help break down for us what happened in Iowa, what's likely to happen in New Hampshire, uh, and then uh, the road beyond. All of that coming up right here uh, at the Roger Stone Show. Two interesting phenomena this past week in, in politics. Uh, the growing speculation uh, that Joe Biden will not stand for re-election, uh, and an increasingly high profile by, yes, you heard it here first, Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama gave a couple of interviews this week in which she said that she was growingly concerned, essentially with the prospect that Donald Trump might be headed back to the White House. I said almost two years ago that I did not think that Biden would stand for re-election. Now, uh, at one time, I thought that perhaps uh, his health was so bad and the impact of his policies was so uh, drastic uh, and negative for the country, uh, and with the burgeoning scandal surrounding his son, Hunter Biden, and uh, his brother Jimmy Biden and other members of the Biden crime family that he might actually step down. Uh, I've revised that view. I don't think that's how it's going to work, but I stand by my prediction that the 2024 Democratic nominee for president of the United States uh, will be Michelle Obama. 
Now, uh, every time she says she's not interested and she's not running, I become more confident uh, that my prediction is correct. Uh, she won't run, you see. She's going to be drafted. How could that work? Well, uh, in the Democratic National Convention system, uh, the role of superdelegates, something that doesn't exist within the Republican nominating process, uh, that process gives a very large block of delegates uh, who are elected uh, public or party officials, uh, and they are politicians by nature. So I see uh, a, a sequence of events under which uh, Joe Biden uh, actually wins all of the Democratic primaries. That's because the Democratic National Committee has essentially cleared the field. They've made it impossible for any viable challenger to challenge Joe Biden uh, in the Democratic primaries. This is the whole reason that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from one of the great dynasties Democratic Party actually bolted the party of his uh, father, Senator Robert F. Kennedy Sr., U.S. Senator from New York State, uh, and his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, to seek to run as an independent. Uh, isn't it funny that the folks who say that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, well, they allow, allow no democracy themselves within their own party process. In other words, the Democratic Party nomination is a lock for Joe Biden because he has no opposition. Uh, and the filing deadlines uh, uh, are quickly passing for almost all of those primaries. That nomination will also be wrapped up uh, really by the end of March. Uh, what does that mean? Well, among other things, it means that Joe Biden could still go to the Democratic Convention with more than enough delegates to be nominated. But looking at dismal poll numbers, uh, uh, even greater development of uh, uh, the revelations regarding Hunter Biden. We had Elise Stefanik, the upstate New York congresswoman on the Roger Stone show last weekend, talked about that extensively. Uh, Joe Biden could announce that he's not going to be a candidate. And that convention that just happens to be in Chicago, hometown of, well, Michelle and Barack Obama, uh, could, quote unquote, draft Michelle Obama. That is my prediction. I stick to it, folks. Uh, and those out there who may be snickering uh, about uh, Michelle Obama's gender or making jokes, that is an egregious uh, mistake. Uh, believe me, she would be an extraordinarily formidable candidate. She can raise whatever funding it is required. She commands the respect of the national press. She has no previous political record to be criticized. She can in some ways step away from the dismal record of the Biden administration. Uh, no, I think, uh, and I don't know the president's mind, President Trump's mind, haven't talked to him about this specifically, but my guess is he wants to run against Joe Biden. 
you could see why that might be the case. Uh, I uh, also quickly want to mention that we've got the vice presidential sweepstakes coming up. President Donald Trump uh, shocked uh, the country at the town hall that he had on Fox where he said he'd already selected his vice president, but it was a secret known only to him. Well, that could be true or it could be showmanship, but even if it were true, he doesn't have to make that decision until July. Uh, if you look at the potentials, well, we had one of them on this show last weekend, Did Elise Stefanik from upstate New York. She's really a warrior, a fighter. She'd be a great candidate. Uh, Christy Nome, the very attractive and articulate governor of South Dakota, uh, and I kind of like Tulsi Gabbard. She's uh, a uh, former Democrat member of Congress, now an independent, on her way to being a Republican. Uh, she's uh, an Iraq war veteran. She's a, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. She's a championship surfer, a former UFC fighter with a real appeal to millennials. Uh, she'd be on my short list, but if President Donald Trump has a short list, well, he hasn't told us what it is yet. Anyway, uh, we've got a great lineup for you today. It is, uh, once again, politics, politics, and politics. So don't touch that dial. Stay right here with us at 70, 70 a.m., or, of course, you can listen to us at wabcradio.com where we are live streaming in 73 countries around the world. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics, and he's a professional at the highest level, Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. I'm Roger Stone, and yes, this is the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC Radio. We are indeed the crown jewel of AM radio, where we're making talk radio great again. Joining me now is Salvatore Greco, a uh, former member of the New York City Police Department, a I think a 14-year veteran of the force, uh, a man who served the people of New York uh, with distinction, uh, often pulling the midnight shift, uh, the graveyard shift in some of the most dangerous precincts in the city. Uh, Sal Greco was terminated by the New York City Police Department. I think that was back in 20... Uh, 21, uh, I think it was, uh, and uh, he was terminated because it was alleged that he violated a New York City police regulation that said that 
police officers could not associate with individuals who in the past or in the future might reasonably uh, be expected to engage in criminal activity. Specifically, uh, his friendship with me uh, got him terminated by the NYPD. The, the problem with that, of course, is that that regulation doesn't seem to have been uh, uh, evenly applied to everyone at NYPD, uh, both historically and uh, currently. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams, uh, who is, of course, himself, uh, a veteran of the New York City Police Off ca- uh, Department, where he served as a captain, writes uh, in his own biography uh, about uh, providing personal security services for Mike Tyson uh, and Louis Farrakhan, uh, both of them uh, convicted felons, uh, as a long association with the Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, another man who has uh, a record. Uh, so if this regulation is applied to Sal Greco, who just happens to be a friend of mine and uh, in his off-duty hours a supporter of President Donald Trump, well, then it would have to be applied evenly uh, to all New York police officers. Uh, and uh, he has filed a lawsuit against the city of New York. That lawsuit has survived two attempts uh, at dismissal by the city of New York uh, and is going now finally to go into the discovery phase and then ultimately go to trial. But Sal Greco has uh, very actively uh, defended himself, uh, both uh, in a number of interviews and here on social media. Uh, And it's his contention that that regulation, the very same regulation under which he was terminated, lost his pension, lost his good conduct letter, which prevents him from getting work as a police officer in another jurisdiction, should he choose to do so, despite an unblemished record of service uh, as a cop, uh, is uh, being violated by others at the highest levels of the NYPD today. Sal Greco, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Uh, Thanks, Roger. It's an honor to be on The Roger Stone Show, WABC. Uh, Look, you have uh, been very, very aggressive uh, regarding the injustice uh, that's been done to you. I think I capsulized it correctly, but uh, there was some big breaking news this past Thursday uh, that entails other high-level members of the New York City Police Department that seemed to have violated this very same regulation under which you lost everything, your your job that you loved, your pension, your good name. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, certainly, Roger. So uh, as I originally was broken on WABC radio by myself on uh, on a show on with Dominic Carter and then with Sid Rosenberg on Sid Ro- Rosenberg's show, uh, I came to to find out about this place. It's called Consafrito in the Bronx. It's a restaurant lounge. Uh, this is a place that is owned by the police commissioner of New York City, the current one, Ed Caban, his brother Richard. Richard is a former NYPD lieutenant. Uh, also, in this place, we've come to find out that the 
creator or manager, as it's written in his own LinkedIn, Jimmy Rodriguez, who is an infamous character. He's a self-admitted criminal. And as we came to find out through sit-down news, he is also a mob associate. He is involved with this place as the manager, creator, co-owner, whatever you want to call it. So uh, this place, Roger, is frequented by the majority or the uh, a high percentage of high-ranking members of the New York City Police Department, such as Ed Caban, the chief of department, Jeffrey Madry, his assistant commissioner, uh, Kaz Daudry, uh, you know, the list could go on and on. It's very high-ranking NYPD officials. They have parties there. And uh, the, main, the main benefactor also being New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Uh, Eric Adams was there for a birthday party, as it stated in this article that was written by the city. Uh, and in the city, it stated that uh, they have a 50 by 100 foot dining structure that's adorned with a fake green plastic leaves and a pink neon sign. And this structure, Roger, has been, it was condemned from the beginning where when they originally received their liquor license back in, uh, what was it, June of, July, I believe, of 2022. And it stated in the Department of Buildings record, which you can actually look this up on the Department of Buildings record in New York City on their website. And when you put in the address, 1315 Commerce Avenue, that they had received a summons. And and that's how they got their SLA license is that they told them that the structure had to be torn down. They, 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 They believed the structure was unsafe, making it a public safety hazard for that structure to be active. But they never did, Roger. They kept the shed up, and they had numerous parties there. Now, what we didn't know, and what I, I it is written in this article, Roger, is that you know there was also the fire department uh, uh, hit them with, I believe, it's seventeen violations, seventeen violations, and then they went back in October of this year, and they hit them with seventeen violations in August of 2022, Roger. And in October of this year. Another FDNY unit went, and they hit them with another violation. So they had 18 fire violations. Roger, with all of this going on, there's been no enforcement there. None. Zero. Remember uh, the characters that go there. You have the police department. We have Eric Adams going there. We have uh, State Assembly Leader Carl Hasty going there. We have the uh, District Attorney of the Bronx, Darcel Clark. We have... The most infamous character there is the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, going there. So uh, this place should never have gotten this far, being open, having a liquor license, carrying out these parties with all these violations, Roger. Uh, it's it's really kind of speaks to the double standard here. It seems to me uh, I was shocked when I heard, for example, that Cardi B... Uh, a, a rapper who has a number of songs about killing the police uh, actually was invited to speak at the New York City Police Department Academy, which means uh, she had to come in contact with the top brass uh, of the NYPD. And that's a clear violation of the very same regulation under which you were terminated uh, and lost everything. I showed up for your administrative trial. Uh, that seemed to really upset uh, those who were persecuting you. 
I showed up simply to issue moral support. Uh, it's very important to recognize that while Sal Greco uh, and I were both uh, in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, uh, neither one of us was at the Capitol. Neither one of us had any knowledge uh, before the fact or in real time about any illegal activity at the Capitol or anywhere else in Washington, D.C., uh, despite the insistence of some on MSNBC, no, I was never in any war room at the Willard Hotel uh, working on uh, getting the U.S. Senate to delay the certification of the Electoral College. I'm familiar with the underlying legal theory on which some sought to do that. I just I'm not a lawyer, but based on my study, I don't think that's necessarily illegal. But I was uninvolved in that process. The Washington Post, not exactly friends of mine, admitted that at least three sources told them I was never in any war room at the Willard Hotel. Although CNN said it on the air just again the other day, uh, and uh, there's no allegation that uh, either uh, Sal Greco or myself did anything wrong on January 5th or 6th. It is very interesting that uh, a member of the Oath Keepers who had been assigned uh, as a volunteer to a security detail for me because I couldn't wash, walk around Washington, D.C. without security. It's a very dangerous place. Testified under oath uh, in uh, the administrative proceeding regarding the termination of Officer Greco uh, that uh, I was completely unaware and uninvolved in any way in any activities uh, by the Oath Keepers uh, on January 6th, and several of them would later, including this gentleman, Joshua James, would later be charged, uh, although I don't believe he has yet been sentenced uh, uh, and uh, and convicted. Uh, but he, he's already testified under oath that that had nothing whatsoever to do with me or with Officer Greco. So uh, this is guilt by association. Uh, and Officer Greco is being held to a, a different standard than current members of the brass of the New York City Police Department. Now, look, we are critics of uh, Mayor Eric Adams, who, by the way, was first on my uh, 15th annual best uh, dressed list that I published on New Year's Day, because regardless of what you think of the job he's doing as mayor or the uh, various scandals swirling around his administration, two things are true. One, he's extraordinarily well-dressed, probably the best-dressed mayor since New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker, Bo James, they used to call him. And secondarily, to be fair, uh, mayor Adams has, and no one in his administration, has been charged or convicted of any crime. All we know is what we read in the New York Post and the New York Daily News uh, about ongoing investigations. But, Sal, what is the status of your uh, lawsuit uh, against uh, those who terminated you? Well, Roger, at the end of this month, in January, I should be hearing from the city's attorneys 
and we were going to discuss um, the discovery, some of the discovery that we have uh, asked for from the city. And it might be a little back and forth banter, I guess. But, uh, you know, with this new revelation from from this concert freak, though, I mean, right here, Roger, in this article, it's, it's, this is so the the uh, owners uh, uh, put a, a, an eviction lawsuit together. The owner of the property says right here, Joseph the Donna the third initiated an eviction lawsuit in September. And he says the order, the owners ignored the judge's order from December 26th to stop using the outside space. And here, here's the thing that's disgusting here, Roger. So on, of all days, January 6th of 2024, there was a NYPD-sponsored event at Concerfrito. It was called Winter Wonderland. It's a toy drive event for children, Okay. Recognize that this place is not only a fire trap, which if you remember in the Bronx, there was a place called Happy Days, which is why all these rules and regulations are in place. So it's not only a fire trap, but a complete public safety hazard with all these violations. And you know who was bringing the children in, Roger? New York Police Department buses were bringing in women and children. There's pictures online to this event to be in a place that shouldn't even be open and that is a public safety hazard to children, to, to people, to the personnel, the NYPD personnel there, in defiance of a court order, which we, as you know, Roger, we go back on my case, the NYPD violated a court order the way they handled the uh, my case and how they went after with the subpoenas and all that. So, Roger, there were children at this event which, by the way, is sponsored on a flyer, was sponsored by New York Police Department Internal Affairs Bureau and the mayor's office. Okay, so they are basically busing in people into a fire trap. I want people to understand this. This is the integrity and the, and the mindset of the New York City Police Department, the leadership there, and the mayor of New York City. Okay, so they've on January 6th, had this party. And it's referenced here, right in this article. So, Roger, with something like this being presented, if, 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 now, it will be presented in my case. I mean, how, how do you believe the city or, 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 or the NYPD would answer this? Because I'm saying, Roger, I believe that with everything we're hearing here, I'm calling on the United States uh, attorney of, uh, of Southern District of New York, who's already investigating Eric Adams. What he what he should do is look into this entire case. How Concerfrito has all these violations and no one's enforcing anything. Nobody's going there. Eric Adams was already under a cloud of dust because he was speeding up. There's allegations of him speeding up alleg- uh, uh, inspections for the Turkish embassy which was right before and during the beginning weeks of his mayoral ship when he first started. If we're going to, if you're going to investigate him for that, you should be looking into this. And it's not only him. You have the police commissioner that's there, the attorney, uh, the district attorney of the Bronx. You have the attorney general of the state of New York that's always there. This can only be handled at a federal le- uh, level. It needs to be looked at, Roger. This is ridiculous that children were bust into this event knowingly they knew that this place has all these violations it's a fire hazard 
this is a disgrace, Roger. And, and, and people, you know, some people on the station like to cozy up to, uh, you know, Eddie Caban and Kaz Daudry. Someone needs to ask him what the hell this was all about and, and why they would do this. This is, this is purely disgusting, Roger. Well, we have all viewpoints here at 77 WABC. It's one of the great things about uh, this station. Uh, I want people to understand, Sal, what this has been like for you personally. I mean, uh, you've you've burned through your life savings, uh, spending it uh, on lawyers, just seeking to get uh, your good name back and to get your back pay and perhaps even get damages given what they have done to turn your life uh, uh, upside down. Uh, As I recall, uh, for reasons that don't make any sense given your unblemished record of service to the city uh, this the nypd actually had you under surveillance at at, at some point uh and uh, you couldn't even attend your own father's funeral when he passed away in the middle of this controversy that's right roger while this was going on uh, my father unfortunately became sick and ultimately uh he, he succumbed to brain cancer and um, I was at the hospital in his final moments, but while I was going to the hospital, there was a vehicle that surveyed me there. Uh, they treated me like I was uh, Juan Pablo Escobar. I mean, they thoroughly investigated me, but yet while this is going on, they're all hanging out with Jimmy Rodriguez. And this goes back to Police Commissioner Shea, Police Commissioner Sewell, and Police Commissioner Caban. They're all pictured with this guy and going to one of his places, or he brings the you know the party to them, and uh, this was this has been a lot. This has been uh, you know it's been it's taken a toll on me, Roger, and my family. And you know because there was also a period that I wasn't allowed to speak to you. If you remember that, they had, they had ordered me not even to speak to you, as if you were uh, the boogeyman. And, and the NYPD treated this as if it was you know an investigation into uh, you know. Some uh, some some uh, mafia killer or something, you know. Meanwhile, when they find when they finally investigated me thoroughly and ended this, they themselves they established that one I was not involved with starting a quote unquote civil war, as somebody gave him a blank letter letter and stated, and two that I have no liability either civil or criminal in regards to the events of January 6, twenty twenty one, or any other nefarious conduct on any other date. And everything that's come about this since then, when they try to drum up my name or your name into something, is basically they are falsely accusing me repeatedly of basically guilt by association because me and you are friends. And anything else that comes about because of that is just another version of political fodder. Yeah, people need to understand the concept of clickbait. You see, when you when you use, for example, my name in a headline, and people click on that story, uh, well, the website, uh, which may or may not be legitimate or unbiased, makes money. So I get accused of all kinds of things that I had nothing to do with. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, about a week ago, uh, my, uh, my nemesis, Ari Melber, uh, on MSNBC uh, has a breathtaking report uh, that says Roger Stone advocated that President Donald Trump invoke the Insurrection Act prior to the 2020 election. 
Well, when you examine it, what you find out is that that's true. A year before the 2020 election, when Black Lives Matter and Antifa was burning down large swaths of the Pacific Northwest and the Midwest, uh, I did say that I thought the president, whose first responsibility as president is to restore order, uh, should have uh, employed the Insurrection Act. It would have saved lives. It would have saved uh, the, uh, we would have avoided damages of millions and millions of dollars of both public and private property. Would have saved thousands of people from being injured. Let me remind you that President George H.W. Bush uh, invoked the Insurrection Act uh, after the Los Angeles riots uh, in the wake of the Rodney King killing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but you see the implication is uh, that it had something to do either with uh, the election of 2020 or it had something to do with January 6th, neither of which is true. Uh, but I'm sure they got a lot of clicks by that disinformation, by that smear, uh, they continue to insist that I'm a, an architect of the fake electors uh, scheme. I've never used the word fake electors in my life, uh, and I've read the Electoral College Act, uh, and it's very clear that when there is a, a legal action pending in a given state, uh, and there's controversy pending in the courts regarding the outcome of an election uh, that the formation and filing of an alternative elective elector slate, exactly as John F. Kennedy did in Hawaii in 1960. By the way, uh, on election night, uh, the electors for Richard Nixon were certified uh, uh, after the absentee ballots were selected. It was learned that John Kennedy had actually carried Hawaii uh, and his alternative uh, selectors were seated and recognized by the U.S. Senate. Nothing criminal there. Uh, but it's this ongoing uh, clickbait campaign uh, that is just designed to drag your name through the mud. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC. Uh, don't touch that dial. We are always at 770 on the AM dial. But, uh, well, if you're out of town, you can always listen to us at WABCradio.com, where we are now streaming worldwide. So check it out. Uh, take a minute, really, to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC radio app, the Red Apple app, uh, to get all of the best programming, both talk and entertainment, right here at the most vibrant uh, AM radio station in America, 77 WABC. Uh, I'm talking to uh, New York City uh, police veteran, Salvatore Greco, a man with a, an unblemished record of service to the people of New York, who I believe has been subjected to a grave uh, injustice. Uh, Sal, let's talk for a moment about the, a city I love, New York City, uh, and the quality of life there. I am uh, shocked that, for example, the Roosevelt Hotel, which is on the list of 
historical landmarks. Uh, once uh, the elite headquarters of New York Governor Tom Dewey, uh, New York City Mayor John V. Lindsay, uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, uh, the New York County Republican Committee uh, is now uh, a migrant shelter uh, that the New York City Police Department have to go to virtually daily because of uh, crimes being committed there either against or by uh, illegal migrants. Uh, Mayor Adams, when he was running for mayor, said that he was proud of the fact uh, that New York City was a sanctuary city. He subsequently said uh, that uh, this influx, this invasion of illegals, which is stretching uh, social services to the breaking point, uh, had the capacity to destroy the greatest city on earth. And then I see the 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 tree lighting ceremony at Rockefeller Center uh, uh, marred by protests and violence. Uh, this really this really breaks my heart. New York City is the greatest city on earth. Uh, but what I see here is the destruction of the city. Uh, I know that you are a, were a proud member of NYPD, but under this current leadership, would you even want your job in the New York City Police Department back again? Would you? And if you did take it back, would you allow, be allowed to arrest anybody who is it you found who in the, in the process of committing a crime? Uh, actually, Roger, uh, I believe it is really a hands-off policy with the uh, illegal immigrants and the undocumented that are there if they commit crimes you could see that they have uh i want to give a big kudos and a shout out to curtis sleever who's actually been on the forefront of this exposing this every turn with uh john tobacco had a plenty of rallies for the people to defend themselves in their neighborhood where they were trying to put all these uh undocumented in shelters and there's all kinds of violations that eric adams is just trying to stomp on things uh, you know people's uh Neighborhoods and their and and their and their rights and the protests that peaceful protests they want the cops to be very hands on and these protests they're very hands off and that that comes from the top Roger and, and with these certain characters these nefarious characters that are in charge today the NYPD I got to be honest Roger I don't know if I would want to be a New York City police officer and it's a shame because I did my job with distinction I'm a highly decorated officer with uh, an unblemished record and. Uh, in all honesty, I think New York City, they lost an asset when uh, I was terminated. And there's other officers now that are in the same category as me that are retiring and leaving for the very same reason, Roger. It's, uh, this leadership seems to be more enamored with the nightlife and being out there in the spotlight, you know, uh, almost rubbing elbows with the characters, we'll say infamous characters, than actually governing the city of New York and keeping people safe. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, my guest, uh, former New York City police officer Salvatore Greco. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio, and we will be right back. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. A man who's gone through hell... But he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now. 
Here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. Joining us now is Chris Collins, uh, a, a businessman, but more importantly, a former congressman from New York's 27th Congressional District uh, until he resigned in 2019. Chris Collins is a former Erie County executive, uh, was the first congressman in the country to endorse Donald Trump for president uh, in the 2016 cycle. Uh, and uh, he was one of our very first guests here on the Roger Stone show when we kicked off the show. Uh, that was, uh, seems like uh, yesterday, but it was, uh, I guess we're almost on our 38th week, I believe. Uh, and uh, there's a terrific story in the Washington Post uh, about Chris Collins uh, and his life. Uh, he uh, resigned under a cloud. He was charged with a crime for which he was not guilty. Uh, he, his story is an inspiring story of redemption. It is a story of faith. Uh, it is a story, perhaps, of one of the greatest political comebacks in history, I am very proud to have my friend Chris Collins uh, join me today on the Roger Stone Show. Congressman, welcome. Roger, it's always good to be talking with you. And what you didn't tell your listeners is the other thing that you and I have in common is we were both pardoned by President Trump on December 22nd of 2020. And I was actually in a prison camp in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, it was a very dark time for me. I mean, three days before Christmas of 2020. And uh, my wife had been working with uh, Mark Meadows, who I went to Congress with back in <clears throat> early 2013. We were both elected in the 2012 cycle. But uh, our great President Trump uh, knew uh, those of us who had been uh, dealt uh, unfair hand, if you want to use those words. And um, you and I and Michael Flynn and some others were all pardoned on that same day. And for me, um, I was released from a federal prison. So that story is somewhat uh, in the Washington Post story that was published yesterday, a very large profile, if you will, of, of my life as I'm now uh, preparing to run for Congress again in Florida 19. I'm not going to challenge Byron Donalds in a primary, but I believe with his relationship with President Trump, uh, he will, in a lot of likelihood, be joining that administration at some point. Uh, uh, he was in Iowa campaigning uh, for the caucuses a couple of days ago. And so, uh, you know, I certainly support what he's done in supporting Donald Trump and being a conservative voice. But I intend to replace him when he does move on, because I believe he will be. And a uh, little piece of history, I would only be the first person to represent two different states in Congress, New York and then Florida, in the past 55 years, and only the second person in the past 100 years to go to Congress representing two different states. So uh, that was one reason I participated with the Washington Post in their interview. Uh, they're known as a liberal paper, but I will tell you uh, they were very fair and it was a very very lengthy profile uh 
that was published. I've gotten a lot of feedback from my fellow members and past members of Congress all saying that they're going to support me with energy uh, when I do run, whether that's this year or next year, because, again, I believe Byron Donalds will be uh, moving on. And uh, that'll be uh, another chapter in my book of life. And uh, so, again, uh, Roger, you and I share a lot of common uh, traits. We both were persecuted, prosecuted, and I leveraged into a guilty plea, which uh, in my case, uh, they leveraged my family. And uh, that's a whole different story, but um, always good to be on our show. And, and uh, uh, anything you want to talk about, let's go. Well, I, I want people to understand precisely what happened to you because it is so outrageously uh, unfair. I mean, in essence, uh, you, as I understand, you were charged with insider trading, which you were not guilty of. You made not a single illicit penny. Uh, you, it seems to me, were targeted by the Justice Department largely because you were the first member of Congress to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, people, I, I really, we, we've talked through this before on the air. Uh, I think it was uh, very revealing. Uh, walk folks through exactly what happened and why you ultimately decided to take a plea. Uh, and uh, I agree with you. Uh, great Thanks uh, to President Donald Trump for seeing the injustice and outrageousness of your politically motivated prosecution and conviction. But walk people through this because it's chilling. Well, I think, and I will, the most chilling thing is how the, I call them the Department of Injustice, will leverage family time and time and time again to, uh, in 98% of of, uh, uh, indictments in the federal system end up in a plea deal. Uh, they leverage your family, and, and they also overcharge people. And, you know, in my case, I was charged with 11 felonies. I mean, the president, I think, in his cases now is facing something like 92 different charges. But when they charge you with separate, in my case, 11 uh, felony counts uh, associated with, with insider trading and and as you said, I never sold any stock, and I was never charged with selling stock. But they will use relationships in a way to, you know, just go after me. And, you know, if you get convicted of 11 felonies, you know, you go for a very long period of time. And that's when they approach other people and say, you plead guilty to one felony. Uh, you know, you may do five years, but you're not going to do 50 years. Um, you know, we need criminal justice reform to, to stop these SOBs uh, from abusing their position. So, you know, in this case, uh, the U.S. Attorney, Jeffrey Berman, uh, a book, he made his money on a book, and it was all about how he fought the uh, Trump Department of Justice. He was part of it. He was uh, appointed U.S. Attorney, and luckily, uh, at some point here, Trump fired him. But uh, the person who came to get me, Damian Williams, was his associate. He's now the U.S. attorney for uh, the Southern District of New York. But the long and short of it is I was on the board of a company developing drug to treat secondary aggressive multiple sclerosis. The most deadly in America I was involved with a company over 15 years. They actually have a drug that works. 
but multiple sources being debilitating had people on a compassionate basis allowed to take the drug. And since it was compassionate, we tracked their progress through the drug worked. Uh, it was life-changing, but when it came time to do a formal FDA trial, the uh, we had to have measure, measurements that proved it worked. And one of them was a length of time it took you to walk across the room. Uh, you know, people on the placebo, you would, would take longer to get a room than somebody on a drug to find the trial. But we ended up having to put patients into the trial that were not late stage in order to get those measurements. And the tragedy here is uh, when the results came back, they did not see a measurable difference between the patients on the drug and patients on the placebo. And it wasn't that the drug doesn't work, but frankly, we had the wrong patients in the trial. But in that case, uh, we had uh, already established that when the trial results came out, stuck was publicly traded in Australia. Um, it was an Australian-listed company, not in the U.S. And uh, we put a trading halt on the stock. We had, so those of us on the board knew when the results were coming out, we knew there would be a trading halt instantly on, on the trial so we could digest whatever the trial results were and then announce them to the public at a later date. But knowing that uh, we would have those, we made sure there was going to be a trading halt. So we got the results. Uh, uh, they were uh, negative. They just showed no measurable difference, and therefore the, the trial was deemed a failure. Uh, each member of the board, myself included, uh, certainly shared those dev devastating results with our families. I mean, again, there's no harm in that. Uh, there was a trading halt on the stock, and all of us certainly own stock, and uh, many of our family members did, uh, including uh, my, my kids. All of our stock was in Australia, couldn't be traded in the U.S., which was trading small numbers of shares on the NASDAQ, which, uh, as the CEO later said, he erred in not making sure NASDAQ halted trading. Uh, no one ever even considered that. Like I said, our stocks were in Australia. But in my case, uh, I, I did share the results with my, my wife and my son. And the next morning, at quarter to 10 in the morning, I got a call from my son that, that uh, they were, there was trading going on on NASDAQ, uh, penny stock, you know, over-the-counter pink sheets. And he did sell some of his stock. Uh, I thought his stock was on, but he had moved into the U.S. Uh, two weeks earlier. I had I had no idea. Uh, by then, it was too late because he had sold some stock. He was 24 years old. Uh, he didn't know better, and uh, that's what started this. You know, when they they track things like this and uh, determined this happened, and they saw an opportunity for my 24 year old son to get me. Um, at the end of the day, the judge did say to the prosecution, I've never seen a case where a 24-year-old that wasn't in the industry had traded some stock. Maybe he shouldn't have done that. But that would be a civil settlement with the SEC, not a criminal felony count, or in his case, eight criminal felony counts. Um, but that was the, the, the road we traveled. Uh, they did. Uh, they looked at everyone who sold stock. They found people 
that uh, knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody that knew me. They charged me with felonies for people that sold stock that I never heard of, never knew, never met, didn't know who they were. And yet they piled on, uh, they piled on wire fraud charges, uh, uh, you, you name it. And, you know, when we got into our discovery, we said, what, what, what's a wire fraud? You know, Collins never sold any stock, never got any money. No money went through his account. Show us this. Well, the Obama appointed judge refused all of our discovery requests. Turns out he used to work for the Southern District of New York. Uh, you know, he was in that office for some time. But, uh, you know, I faced the Department of Injustice. They, they had, you know, the case against me totally imploded on them. When they did find out, I didn't share the results with anyone else that sold stock. I didn't sell any myself. And uh, they also violated my constitutional rights as a member of Congress and the way they scooped up electronic materials from my staff in computers looking for some linkage. But in doing that, they violated the speech or debate clause that protects members of Congress from having another branch of the government, Department of Justice, going after what could be legislative materials. Uh, you know, they were sloppy. Uh, they finally, you know, <laughs> the irony of ironies is Nancy Pelosi filed an amicus brief uh, with the, uh, the court supporting my position that they had violated my speech or debate rights under the Constitution as a member of Congress because she was concerned it could happen you know, to any member of Congress unless this was, was dealt with. Uh, the judge ruled against us in each case. Uh, we stated we were going to appeal his rulings to the Supreme Court in an interlocutory appeal, which we had the right to do. Uh, and the court understood that, the judge understood that, the prosecution understood that. And it would have delayed any trial uh, that I would have faced by three years. And and I've always said that I would have been acquitted at trial. You know, fundamentally, I, I never sold stock. I didn't charge someone with insider trading. And especially given the, the facts, there was a trading halt on the stock. So when I made a phone call, it was under the understanding no one could trade stock. Every member of the board shared the information with their families. Well, this is where Damian Williams, in, in a book that Jeff Berman wrote, said, the way to get Collins is to leverage his son. We're going to separate his son from his trial, and we don't believe the congressman will sit on the sidelines while his son goes to trial uh, without him. And they were right. Uh, that came out in late September of, of 2019. We went to the uh, prosecution, said, what do we got to do to, to you know, put this to an end? They said, well, the congressman's got to plead guilty to one charge of conspiracy to commit insider trading. Since I hadn't traded, they couldn't hit me with that. Conspiracy can be an overbroad definition. And one statement of uh, one charge of making a false statement uh, to the FBI, which they never shared with us what that statement was. Uh, again, in discovery, we got ruled against time and again with them saying, you'll hear about that as the trial date approaches. We're, we're not going to disclose that this early in discovery. So I did accept that plea. Uh, my son pled guilty to one charge of conspiracy to commit securities fraud and that sentencing. Uh, what I did worked to the extent my son was put on probation. 
Um, and the judge slapped me with 26 months in federal prison, even though the uh, uh, probation department had recommended, quote, well, a year and a day, almost unheard of for a judge to more than double the time that somebody's going to be sentenced. But he, he even made uh, a mention uh, at my sentencing how I had the audacity to run for re-election, which I did in 2018. Uh, he, I was indicted less than 90 days from the election. Jeff Berman, in his book, admitted he understood the political impact of that, but he thought my constituents deserved to know I was under indictment or would be. So he indicted me, uh, you know, like they've done with Trump. I had less than 90 days to go. I had 11 felony counts on my head. You'd say, who can ever get elected with 11 felony accounts, you know, in less than 90 days from the election? The long and short of it is, after pausing my reelection for about five weeks, um, I stepped back out, ran for reelection, and I was reelected uh, to Congress uh, in the uh, November 2018 election. Uh, even though I had 11 felony counts on my head. Uh, you know, the other thing that happened, I went in and Paul Ryan, who was our speaker, took me aside and he said, we have a rule that says you can't serve on a committee. I was on the most influential committee, Energy and Commerce. He stripped me of my committee assignment and it was a fabricated rule. Uh, that rule did not exist. You know, I wasn't going to fight the Speaker of the House, but as I think back on it, you know, he stripped me of my committee assignment, and there was no basis for that. Um, you know, I accepted it and said, okay, uh, life moves forward, and, uh, um, uh, and it did. I had to res I, when I pled guilty on September 30th and uh, resigned from Congress the next day, October 1st of 2019, and then had to sit back, wait for the, the sentencing. And uh, again, was successful that my son did not go to prison, and I got hit with 26 months. You know, I'm old enough to say, if uh, in a camp setting in Pensacola, you know, whatever that happens to be, I can survive that. But it's all about family, and uh, so I did think. You know, COVID hit very shortly after uh, I was sentenced, and in this case. Uh, when COVID hit, uh, I was not yet in, and we were able to postpone my date to get into prison based on the fact I was 70 years old, had asthma, would have been at very high risk of dying in prison if I contracted COVID, and there was no vaccine. So we got several delays, you know, from March to April to June to August to October, because it was COVID still raging throughout 2020, and I was in the highest risk category. Uh, I was due to report October 13 of 2020, and we asked for another delay till December because of my age and underlying health issues. And it should have been, a, you know, kind of a no-brainer. But in this case, uh, the judge refused to act on our ruling, and he let our ruling expire. Uh, and it's obvious now they wanted me to do jail time, and the rumor was I might be pardoned. President Trump. And so the judge, uh, he'll have to, you know, at some point in his day of reckoning, according uh, to a federal prison on October 13th, had some high pressure. At a point in time, there were no treatments or anything else. 
uh, and they actually said prison was safer than Marco Island, Florida. There were cases of COVID in Marco Island, Florida, where we were living, but there were no cases of COVID in the federal camp in Pensacola. I mean, this, the audacity of that logic escapes me. But I was forced in. Uh, I was there for 71 days and was pardoned on December 22nd of 2020 and came home, you know, to start my life. And the irony is three weeks after I left the prison camp, COVID ravaged the prison camp. 100% of the inmates contracted COVID within three weeks of President Trump's pardon of me to get me out of what I think may well have been a death sentence. Because I would have contracted COVID along with at home, I would say, and and I will say in, in a memoir I've been working on, President Donald J. Trump saved my life with a part on December 22nd, 2020, three weeks before COVID ravaged the entire Pensacola prison camp. So I just wrote a very long uh, a uh, piece of my story, there's several things that should disturb any listener about the Department of Injustice, talking about how they leverage family, they overcharge, uh, they pressure in order to get guilty pleas. They don't like to go to trial. They just want guilty pleas so they can write books and brag about, in my case, taking down a sitting member of Congress. But at some point, you know, they need to answer the fact that I was even forced into a prison. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, at my age, there's only person in the prison camp over age 70. And again, with asthma and high blood pressure. Uh, but I did get out. Thank you, President Trump, for saving my life. And now I intend to go back to Congress uh, sometime uh, after Byron Donald's uh, moves, I think, into the administration. And, you know, I'll have uh, another chapter in my book of life. Uh, the whole world, of course, saw uh, on the morning of January 25th, uh, 2019, uh, 29 heavily armed, fully SWAT clad FBI agents swarm my home to uh, arrest me for the first time nonviolent alleged crime uh, of lying under Congress in my voluntary testimony <clears throat> regarding Russian collusion that we now know definitively never actually happened. This was, uh, I think, apparent to everybody, set up for CNN, who just happened to have uh, a camera uh, crew 25 feet from my front door. Wow, how coincidental they just happened to be there. Uh, you narrowly avoided a very similar situation uh, where they, I think, not only uh, sought to take you down for politically motivated reasons, but to humiliate you, largely because you were a supporter of President Trump. Uh, but you, you avoided that. Tell us about that. Well, uh, you know, as the county executive in Buffalo, you know, the largest upstate county in New York, and as county executive, I had oversight over everything from the sheriff's department and interface with the other law enforcement, certainly including the like our law enforcement. Uh, I go bills uh, a few uh, counties. Uh, you know, we had the uh, you know, uh, in in the county, and I was uh, the county executive. Um, 
that uh, I found out that they were intending to raid uh, my house in, in Clarence, New York, uh, like they did you to, with the film uh, crew out there pulling me out in my underwear uh, to be humiliated. Uh, I got a phone call uh, from an FBI agent. Uh, his call was, uh, Mr. Collins, you don't know me, but I know you. I know of you. There are plans to uh, go to your house with a film crew and pull you out so that you can be embarrassed on national TV. Uh, I know your background. I respect you, what you've always done in supporting law enforcement and what you've accomplished in the in Erie County. And I want to let you know ahead of time that's coming. So uh, you could take actions to try to avoid that. Uh, I hung up the phone. Uh, I said to my wife, I'm disappearing. Uh, we went to the airport. Uh, car rental. I rented a car in her name. I took the SIM card out of my telephone, got in the car. I drove to New York City where my daughter had an apartment and I uh, disappeared. I turned the car in, took a taxi, paid cash, uh, had them drop me off four blocks from my daughter's apartment and they couldn't find me. They desperately tried to find me. They could not, and five days later, because we've been asking, because we knew something was coming, that we'd be allowed to, quote, self-surrender um, and go through that process of, of being indicted. Um, and they finally, you know, calmly called my attorney and said, well, uh, we've decided to accept uh, your offer of self-surrender. Of course they did. They couldn't find me. They didn't know where I was. And I guess the good news is I cheated them out of the possibility of them doing to me what they did to you, and they do to others all the time. Uh, Nonviolent people, uh, you know, they show up to embarrass you. They tip off CNN and the local TV stations. I mean, this just shows you the the arrogance and the abuse of the U.S. Attorney's Department of Justice. The FBI goes along with it. Uh, you, you can't defend it. I mean, in your case, gunboats and everything else. Uh, and in my case, they just pulled me out of my underwear and was filming. But I, I had the good fortune of having some inside the FBI understand what was going to come down and tip me off. Not, and I didn't even know this individual, but he just it was fundamentally something that happened. So that's I avoided the debacle that you had to go through, Roger. Well, I had a very similar situation uh, by the time I was, uh, I think, unjustly convicted. Mueller, by the way, forced to admit on November 3rd, 2020, when his final report uh, was ultimately unredacted by only by order of a federal judge, that he had found uh, no evidence of Russian collusion or WikiLeaks collaboration or any other crime on my part. So I was charged in an effort to pressure me to testify falsely against Donald Trump. I refused to do that. Uh, and I lived through two and a half years of hell because of it. Uh, the same situation. The Bureau of Prisons insisted there were no COVID cases uh, in the dank Georgia prison they wanted to send me to. I was 69 years old at the time, also with a lifetime history uh, of asthma. In our case, 
our whistleblower was uh, a an african-american woman who was the head of the prison guards union at this particular facility in georgia read about this in the newspaper or saw it on tv called my attorney and said look there if the bureau of prisons is telling you there are no covid cases here that's not true we have tested over 200 inmates and we're just waiting for the tests to come back but there are people here who are very sick uh, and within uh, within days uh, of the commutation of my sentence, the website for the Bureau of Prisons showed that there were well over 100 uh, cases of COVID-19 at the facility at which I was supposed to turn myself in. So like with you, this this was uh, a death sentence. Uh, it is a, it's a broken system. Uh, there are those, particularly some in the media, who will never get over the fact that, well, I continue to this day to say that I did nothing wrong because I did nothing wrong. And I thank Jesus Christ, uh, my faith, uh, and the bold leadership uh, of Donald Trump for saving my life. Very similar to you. Uh, let's let's get into a, a, a much, uh, uh, I think, a brighter topic, although an important one. Chris, if you get back to Congress, uh, what's the first thing you would do? What are the greatest challenges facing this country today? Because I know it has to be hurting you to know Given your record of leadership and your record of accomplishment on behalf of the people of upstate New York uh, and the people you would now serve in in uh, southwestern Florida, what would you do if you got back to Congress? What would be your priorities? Well, and, and let me uh, 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 mention two other things here before I get into that. The other two people that were, or two of the people pardoned on the same day as us, I was the first member of Congress uh, to endorse Donald Trump. One was Duncan Hunter, congressman uh, from California, who was the second person to endorse Donald J. Trump for president in February of 2016. He also was forced into a guilty plea to a felony with leveraging his family, um, having to do with some campaign fund issues, which is never done criminally. Again, it's uh, you might settle with the ethics people or something else. They saw take me down, the first member of Winbart, and they thought it would take Hunter down, the second member, and then they took down General Flynn. And again, they leveraged General Flynn's family. Somebody, you know, as we all know, his story uh, and, and what he went through. But you and I were pardoned. Uh, Duncan Hunter was pardoned. So was General Flynn because President Trump understood the injustice uh, done, uh, frankly, to all of us, as well as Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, who was also pardoned on the same day. You know, there was a whole list of Trump supporters uh, that were taken down by the Department of Injustice. Uh, but back to your question, uh, the beauty of me going back to Congress will be Donald J. Trump will be the president of the United States. Uh, people may not realize, too, that because of my support and interaction with the president during his campaign, uh, I was appointed uh, by uh, Paul Ryan, who later stripped me of my committee assignment, to be the, and this was at Trump's assistance, the congressional liaison to the White House. And I also was placed on uh, President Trump's, uh, the executive committee of his transition team. So I was involved with uh, getting 
and uh, helping vet all the appointments into the administration. Any member of Congress who wanted someone they knew to enter the administration into any appointed position had to run that through my office. And then we worked with uh, the uh, president's staff to you know, recommend certain people for all manner and sort of administrative jobs. You know, there's literally like 2,000 appointments that come through when there's a change in administration. Chris, I, 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 Chris, I apologize. Unfortunately, we're, we have run out of time. I want to thank Chris Collins, uh, former and future member of Congress, for joining us here on The Roger Stone Show. My Chris, pleasure, God bless Roger. you thank and you so Happy much. New Year. Yes, you as well. Thank you, Roger. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. This is Roger Stone. We're back on The Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC Radio. Folks tune in to The Roger Stone Show mostly because they love politics and my guest today, Doug Kaplan, is one of the foremost survey researchers uh, and political consultants in the country uh, with uh, more than 12 years in experience uh, in American politics. Uh, he has uh, empowered companies, nonprofits, as well as candidates to thrive by offering services in public relations, digital marketing, direct mail campaigns, call management, and precise and deadly accurate polling, that is, uh, survey research. Uh, I'm delighted to have Doug Kaplan join me today on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger. It's an honor. How are you? So uh, you have given political commentary for uh, Politico, uh, Bloomberg, The Washington Post, The Washington Times, uh, The Orlando Sentinel, and many others. Uh, I've heard you on the Howie Carr Show, on NPR, uh, on uh, uh, All America's News. Uh, I'm really delighted that you could make the time to talk to us today. You've conducted uh, over 500 public uh, opinion polls uh, in your uh, career. Uh, you've been involved literally in thousands of political campaigns. Uh, starting off, tell me your uh, impressions uh, of the final results uh, of the much-covered Iowa caucuses. Yeah, listen, it couldn't be better news for uh, President Trump. Um, he got over 50 percent. Uh, I, I believe it was a record margin. We're close to it. Um, you know, DeSantis got to kick it out. Not great news for him, though. In, in, in the cold weather, uh, where it fell minus 20, we were told he had this enormous ground game. If that was the case, he should have turned out more people. He barely beat Nikki Haley, who really had no money in Iowa. So I think that Trump did well. Um, DeSantis, not so good. And Haley survives to New Hampshire. 
to me, I think the intensity uh, of the uh, of Trump's supporters has been a key factor in this first contest. I think it's going to be a key factor in New Hampshire, also a key factor going forward. The the Trump voter uh, is a very deeply committed voter. Uh, did you detect this kind of intensity in your uh, in your polling? Absolutely. Like like you said, Roger, it's a movement. And it's hard to beat a movement without COVID and, you know, and uh, campaigning in his basement with the mask. It's hard to see Trump losing last time or you know, whatever might have happened. But it's hard to see Biden getting anywhere near close if the condition of COVID doesn't happen when it happens. No, I did. Uh, I was happy, obviously, that he uh, crested 50 percent. I, in my own personal prediction, I thought he was. He might, he might, I was feared that he might fall just short of it. Still uh, an amazing double-digit uh, victory over the nearest contender. Uh, but um, I was really delighted when he uh, uh, beat the odds, uh, particularly given uh, the frigid conditions. Uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at the, at the uh, lessons of history. Uh, in 1980, Ronald Reagan... Uh, running in the Iowa caucuses, uh, had a 22-point lead over his nearest challenger, uh, former U.N. ambassador then George H.W. Bush in Iowa. Uh, but Reagan was overconfident, uh, dropped into the state, did a couple high-profile events, but did very, very little retail campaigning, did uh, very few public events. And then uh, he was uh, shocked uh, in an upset, uh, and for a brief moment, about a week, it actually appeared that George Bush had what he called the big mo. Uh, then, interestingly enough, George Bush made the exact same mistake. In other words, Reagan headed directly to New Hampshire, and he stayed there for over a week, right up until they counted the votes, uh, and uh, he even though he was a august former governor of California, he did a series uh, of rallies, but just hit the streets doing personal campaigning. Uh, George Bush left New Hampshire early, confident of victory, went back to Houston, uh, and uh, that was the de facto end of any real prospect that George H.W. Bush would defeat uh, Ronald Reagan to become president. It's amazing right. to me how Trump has learned the history the, from the lessons of history, from the mistakes of others. Uh, he made uh, a, an incredible foray into Iowa uh, in its frigid conditions, uh, uh, arriving Saturday night before the caucuses, did, uh, I think, three rally events that Sunday, campaigned all day Monday, stayed in Iowa until the results were known, and then, and only then, did he fly to New York, where he had to appear in court, uh, and then fly immediately to New Hampshire. How significant are these campaign appearances uh, as they fit into the Trump phenomena? Yeah, it's just something I don't think we probably have seen, you know, in 50 or 60 years. I mean, it's just an incredible. It's just an, it's just an incredible uh, phenomenon. Plus, he gets, you know, these people come, they get excited, they turn out to vote. He gets information on all these people, 
their names, their emails, their contact information, so we can contact them again. So it's just, a, just an enormous thing with the rallies. You know, he's pulling tens of thousands of, of people in places like New Hampshire. I mean, you know, no one else could do that. It's a real movement. Maybe Obama could have done that in 2008. Maybe that, you know, that was the last time that we saw a movement. Other than that, no one else could. Now, you make an excellent point. I mean, having been in politics for 45 years, I can tell you that we used to have to work hard to get people to turn out for our rallies, even for presidential candidates. There's a number of areas where Donald Trump really breaks the mold, where you can't compare him uh, to anybody who came before him. First of all, of course, he's the first business person to become president prior to Donald Trump. All of our presidents were either governors or senators or congressmen or generals. Uh, the Republican Party nominated a businessman in 1940. That was Wendell Wilkie. Uh, he ran the strongest race against uh, Franklin Roosevelt of any of the four challengers uh, to Roosevelt. He got 26 million votes, uh, but he was uh, defeated. Uh, all of the conventional uh, rules are off the table when it comes to Donald Trump. Not only does he turn out thousands of people for these rallies, uh, and, and believe me, when he goes to a state, any state, I'm contacted by people I know in that state asking me whether I can get them on the list, whether I can get them priority seating, whether I can get them in the gate. Uh, it, it's He really is a phenomenon. The other place I think he's an interesting phenomenon uh, is his endorsement within the Republican Party really packs a wallop. Uh, I have yeah. not looked at any poll anywhere in the country for any office over the last year uh, in which when you test the question, uh, would you be more likely or less likely to vote for a candidate, let's say, for Congress if he was endorsed by Donald Trump, where that positive number is less than 60. I mean, Doug, have you ever seen that before in your many years of polling? No, no, never. I mean, I mean his, like you said, his endorsement is worth an enormous amount of, of points. It's very rare that uh, when he endorses someone, they lose a Republican primary. I mean, he's probably at a 90%, uh, you know, 90%, 90% streak there. Uh, so it's just an enormous, enormous thing. Uh, how do you uh, see uh, New Hampshire uh, unfolding, uh, given the data that you've, uh, not only your own data, but the data that you've been looking at? You know, I, I, I had, we, we put out a poll in, in a couple of months ago. We saw Haley rising. Um, you know, the Spanish people are very nasty about it. They were attacking, et cetera. Um, the thing is that Haley's been rising. There's been polls which show her at second. But I think that she made a critical error. I think by canceling the debates with Sanders this weekend, where is she going to get any momentum at? Trump has all the momentum. At least she could have went into those debates and she could have attacked Trump. He wasn't there to respond. Now there's nothing for her to do to get any momentum. Um, it's, New Hampshire's a good state for Haley. A lot of Democrats are going to vote and a lot of uh, liberal independents are going to vote because they have no one else to vote for. Um, but Trump won that state overwhelmingly last time against Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, that Governor Ron DeSantis has uh, dropped uh, not only to third 
place, but to 5% of the vote. I mean, did you find this surprising? You know, so so, so when he was was faced with Rubio, he won overwhelmingly in New Hampshire last time. I see if Haley doesn't win by at least under 10 points, I don't know how she continues because then she's going to lose her home state the second, the, the, the next week ahead. Um, so it's just, you know, Trump is so far ahead of these people. So it's not when they're going to drop out. It's, you know, it's not if they're going to drop out, it's when. Um, and they're, they're just hanging around because they think something might happen with the court, something like that. That's the only reason why they're still in the game. Uh, here's, uh, I guess, the $24 question. What happened to Ron DeSantis? I mean, I, I gave my views earlier in the show, but uh, there was a time, yeah. as you know, he was leading Trump nationally. He was leading Trump uh, in the early states. Uh, his campaign certainly had no lack of resources. He's spent between super PACs and his own fundraising, $150 plus million. Uh, what went wrong here? Because whatever went wrong, went wrong big time. He's he's big not time. even in double digits now in New Hampshire. He's dropped to 5%. He might be behind Chris Christie, who might not even in the race anymore. That's how bad it is for him in New Hampshire. I guess that's um, true happened? because Christie's name is still on the ballot since it's too late to get it off. Yeah. Well, what, what happened to him was, listen, he ran against Andrew. People... He did have a. He did have a large. You live in Florida. He he had a large victory last time, but so did Ashley Moody and Jimmy Petronas. Same same margins, about twenty points. It was just a bad year in Florida for the Democrats. You know, um, people read too much into that. They forgot four years before this is the same guy that only beat Andrew Gilliam by half a point, a guy under federal investigation that was known for you know taking tickets to Hamilton, stuff like that. Uh, who was later indicted? Uh, you know, got busted smoking crack male prostitutes. I know he won that race by half a point, and there was a major recount. Um, so he was never a great candidate. And and then, you know, he had a, a supermajority in the Florida legislature. So he had a lot done, a lot of stuff that he got, was able to get done. He never had a Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer to deal with. So if you have a supermajority, you can get a lot done. And they were beholden to him um, because they, they, they thought he was going to win. And, you know, a lot of the fights that he got into, he's lost in court. Um, so it looked great on paper, but, but, but he spent a ton of money, taxpayer money in court. And the final thing is in Florida, where he's under 50% now favorable, which is amazing, the home insurance crisis is starting to catch up to him, where people lost, you know, people insurance of doubling, tripling, quadrupling. You know, if you're on a fixed income, even if you're wealthy, you can't afford the insurance anymore. And it's finally caught up to him. And people are paying attention to that issue uh, locally. But I think DeSantis with with Trump, it's just hard to explain. You know, he wanted to run a race. He never wanted to offend Trump. So he really never went after him with all that money. Um, and, you know, he hired the same people as Ted Cruz, the same exact people they ran the same exact race, um, and, and they squandered $150 million on, 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 on nothing. So it, it, it's, 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 a pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing. And, and you look at Marco Rubio endorsed Trump the other day. It was really a spit in the face of, of his home governor, DeSantis. And that was all about control of the Republican Party in Florida for 2028, you know. Um, that's what that was about. Um, but I don't think we've ever seen a campaign run like DeSantis before. 
uh, an implosion like him. He was at 30, 35%. Now he's down to 10. Yeah, early on, uh, he refrained from uh, uh, attacking uh, Donald Trump, even though he was under withering attack from Trump, who charged him with disloyalty, given Trump's uh, role in DeSantis's meteoric rise. People right. who don't live in Florida may not be aware of the fact that 2018, Ron DeSantis was a largely unknown congressman uh, with a not a particularly distinguished record, struggling uh, in the polls in a race for governor, struggling to raise money. Uh, and uh, it was only the tweeted endorsement of Donald Trump, uh, which catapulted DeSantis to the Republican gubernatorial nomination. Uh, and then after two, I would argue, bad debates with the mayor of Jacksonville, uh, Andrew Gillum, at best a draw, although if you go back and look at them now, uh, Gillum's uh, superior knowledge of state issues and efforts to move to the center, despite the fact that he was in fact a radical progressive, uh, Donald Trump had to come to Florida, change his schedule uh, in the last two weeks to come to Florida three times, to literally drag Ron DeSantis uh, across the finish line. I think I was one of the first people in the country to tell President Trump that Ron DeSantis was going to challenge him in 2024. And he honestly, the first time I told him, he didn't believe me. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, he said, you know, I think this guy might be prepared to challenge me. Uh, and I said, yes, he is. And then the third time it was kind of, Wow, this SOB, this ingrate is actually going to run against me. But in politics, your campaign has to have a rationale. Why are you running? Right. Uh, if What's he was going to try to be the America First candidate, that space was already taken by the originator of the America First movement, Donald J. Trump himself. He had no he he had no argument. Listen, he, he got a billion dollars in free press from Rupert Murdoch, and he thought that's what life was about. He never had a hard interview before. I mean, they were fawning on him of, on Fox News for about a year, and that, now he's complaining that that stopped. But his press was just enormous. They'd have him on there every single day, and they would just fawn over him. And he must have got a billion dollars of free press, you know, and that went away for him. That's that's another thing that hurt him as well. Yeah, I ha still I kept the the copy of the New York Post, the headline of which is "De Future," which was uh, the day after uh, he won stunning re-election. That hasn't worked out so well. And then, ironically, towards the end of the race, his attacks on President Donald Trump got increasingly shrill, increasingly personal. He essentially said he, he's too old for the job. He, he relies on a teleprompter. Uh, he didn't keep any of his promises. But then the most outrageous one is uh, that he was getting support from the conservative media, uh, including Fox, which, uh, right. of course, is, is outrageous because Fox uh, gave DeSantis an incredible ride. Oh, yeah. Also, HarperCollins, the publishing house owned by Rupert Murdoch and the News Corporation gave Ron uh, a multi-million dollar advance uh, for a book that I think sold uh, well fewer than 30,000 copies. So uh, HarperCollins lost money on that, but 
Ron DeSantis, for the first time in his life, became a millionaire, uh, right. he, a, a, and his wife. So nobody could have gone into this race with greater uh, assets. I won't say advantages. I say assets than Ron DeSantis had. Uh, and then uh, the irony of ironies, he says on MSNBC that, no, he, he doesn't believe that the 2020 election was stolen. There were no irregularities. Uh, he didn't think there was anything wrong with Fox News calling Arizona for Biden before they had counted the votes in Arizona. Yet he was complaining that on caucus night, based on projections from key precincts, uh, that Fox and virtually every other news outlet had already declared Donald Trump the winner while some caucus sites were still voting. The hypocrisy here is really thick, really thick. Yeah, exactly. He also got exposed nationally. It's much different running in Florida against Adam Putnam or Charlie Crist. When you, you, have, you have money and, you know, you, you run on television and, and you don't have to go in, you know, little restaurants and meet people for coffee. And he's just not a good retail politician. You know, usually the guy who's second usually comes back and wins the nomination in 2028. He's by far not the favorite. I mean, we're talking four years down the road, but he's he's by far not the favorite to come back and say, okay, I'm going to pull Nixon and come back. No way. I don't see how he does it. He's out of politics in two years. Yeah, I agree with that. People may not know this, but Florida has a term limitation, so he's in his second and therefore last term uh, for as governor. Uh, as uh, Doug Kaplan just told us, Senator Marco Rubio, uh, the uh, the senior senator from Florida, uh, uh, endorsed Donald Trump only days ago. That means both U.S. senators in Florida have now endorsed Donald Trump in Ron DeSantis's home state. And the deadline, happens. the deadline for DeSantis to take his name off the presidential primary ballot in Florida passed back on December 12th. It's too late to get his name off the ballot, even if he were, and I'm not saying he will, because he's certainly sharing his thoughts with me, but even if he were to withdraw from the race after the drubbing he's going to take next Tuesday in New Hampshire. It's too late to get his name off the Florida ballot. Uh, right now, he would lose by, I would say, 50 points in his home state to Donald Trump. What an embarrassment. Yeah, yeah terrible. It, it, it really is. It really, it really is terrible. He also comes back to Florida in a different world. He's a lame duck. There are other people that are going to run for governor. Um, you know, people are talking about his wife running for governor. You know, that's, 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 that's how much power he had just a couple of months ago. Uh, now there's all different types of factions that are going to be fighting for, for, for that, you know, nomination and winning governor and win, winning the race. So he's not going to have the power that he once did where he's going to have a rubber stamp in the legislature. They're going to, you know, they're going to have the control. They have the supermajority. They can override him. And um, I think so it's, so it's just a different atmosphere. And again, like you said, in two years, he's done. He's out of politics. He's got no Senate seat he can run for. Scott is running this year, so six more years. Rubio uh, ran two years ago, so he's still four more years before his seat is. So he's, he's literally out of politics for two years with nothing to do. Uh, and, without the, and without the governorship, no fulcrum right. from which to raise money. I mean, a lot of the money he raised was special interest money, people who gave not because they liked him, but because they felt that they had to. 
that, that, that's know. right. And like, unless it was a Florida PAC, which he totally took that money and put it into a federal PAC, which never should have happened. If the FEC did anything, you know, they should have investigated that because you can't transfer money like that the way he did that. Yeah, the legality of that is, uh, as you point out, quite questionable. Uh, Doug, what is the what's the future of Nikki Haley in this race? She's uh, she's at least in double digits in New Hampshire. She's got Governor Chris Sununu, uh, the the moderate Republican governor, uh, working uh, overtime to try to drag uh, uh, non-Republicans into the Republican primary. Uh, as you point out, the, the the schedule goes next to her home state of South Carolina, uh, where she's also trailing Trump badly. Uh, what does she have to do in New Hampshire to be viable uh, in this race? Well, she's got to she's got she's got to come within ten, I think, um, and she's got to at least finish second in South Carolina, her home state, by the way, um, to last the Super Tuesday, and that's 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 what she's hoping for. Um, and then DeSantis drops out, so it's a, it's a one-on-one race, her versus Trump. Uh, and she lives another day. Maybe she gets, you know, some super PAC money um, in there, and she's able to to, to win some delegates in, in some 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 open primary states where independents and Democrats can vote. It is impressive that she's probably the last person standing when she really didn't have any any consultants or any uh, money or any big backers. So for her to get ahead of the Sanders and the rest of, of of the crew is is quite impressive of what she's done. But but she has no chance to be the you know president. But it is impressive of what she's done. Yeah, what I would not like to see is a situation like we had in 1980, where after Reagan had clearly dispatched Bush uh, and uh, had enough delegates to be nominated. Bush remained in the race largely just because he still had money in the bank uh, due to shrewd campaign budgeting by James A. Baker III, his campaign manager, uh, and Bush was de facto running for vice president. Uh, This whole idea of a Bush-Haley ticket uh, is extremely distasteful to me uh, and most America first Republicans uh, that I know. You got two factors here. First, there is the personal integrity factor. Uh, Nikki Haley looked Donald Trump in the eye uh, and told him that if he ran, he was among our greatest presidents and she would not run. And then she broke her word. DeSantis was more duplicitous. He just did it. He never promised not to do it. He just did it. Uh, But in the case of Nikki Haley, she lied to the man himself. And then secondarily, their views are just so antithetically different uh, when it comes to our foreign entanglements. Trump was elected in 2016 as a non-interventionist. He was very uh, successful as president of bringing our troops home without the countries in the Middle East where they were stationed collapsing into uh, chaos, unlike what Biden did in Afghanistan. Uh, the American people, I don't think, have any taste for more endless foreign war costing us billions of dollars when we have very real problems, very real issues here in the United States. Uh, This is the exact wrong time for a candidate who, in many ways, at least on the foreign policy front, uh, is a pale comparison to Joe Biden. It's hard for me to see where their views diverge. Uh, I don't think there's a constituency for that neocon 
foreign war philosophy in the modern Republican Party. I agree. I don't. It's, I don't. It's, just, it's a percent. It's a percentage. For a lot of those people have moved already. They're Democrats now. Um, you know, they, they're, they're you know the strong Bush voters, the neoconservatives. They become they become Bush voters. They become uh, Democrats already. Um, the people that you see on MSNBC and CNN that were once Republicans or call themselves Republicans and you know Republicans in name only, but they they voted for Joe Biden. So they already moved. Um, to think, you know. I highly doubt he picks a Nikki Haley. Like, I don't think he needs her. You know, when he could pick, I think he picks someone like Elise Stefanik or, or Tim Scott. I think Haley and him would be would just not get along, and it would be a, a disaster. He's got to pick someone like like that would that would like a, a, a Pence model, where they're not going to overshadow him or or, or make it about them. But well, wrong, uh, uh, former President Richard Nixon once told me when choosing a vice president, don't look for someone who can help you. There is no one who can help you. Just look for someone who doesn't hurt you. Uh, exactly. I, I joked uh, a couple weeks ago that if Donald Trump picked uh, Nikki Haley, uh, well, he'd need a, a food taster. Uh, it, it, I think the, the blood is not good. Uh, I think there's very little prospect. I think you said it best, Doug. He, he doesn't need uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, she hasn't developed uh, the kind of uh, uh, following in the country. Uh, I think she confounded a lot of people uh, on, on caucus night when she said, even though she came in third, this is now a two-person race. Although, uh, now that you look at these poll numbers, that may actually be true. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is a two-person race, unless somehow DeSantis surprises in South Carolina. Um, I, I just don't know how he how he does it since it's her state. She's going to get some. Granted, she hasn't been governor in a while, but but it's hard to think all of a sudden DeSantis is going to leapfrog, especially when he doesn't he doesn't have any. Um, where is he going to get the momentum from? He doesn't get the debate harm. So that could be a reason why she canceled it as well to save herself in South Carolina, in case she made a mistake. Um, she would have, you know, she saved herself in South Carolina. But it's just hard to see how the status of any money after South Carolina if he finishes third. So it seems to me like it's it's a two-person race. And really, what's saving Haley is independents and Democrats. She performs well in these open primary states like New Hampshire, where the Democrats can vote and the independents can vote. In a state like Florida, where only Republicans can vote, she doesn't perform well. Um, she still performs better than DeSantis, but but she doesn't perform. She's forty points behind Trump instead of twenty points behind Trump. So uh, I think that's our story. We're almost uh, at the end here, so but let's uh, let's hit this uh, as kind of our final point. How do you see a Trump Biden race based on everything you are looking at? Well, I think the polls are, are kind of irrelevant at this point. I, I, I think it's very close. I think the problem for Biden is that they claim they got in, this is what they claim. They claim they got the deficit under control. The stock market's at record highs. Unemployment's pretty low. Yet he's still, you know, at 40% of his favorables. What happens if something goes wrong uh, on the economy, like, you know, something big? What, what, what is he going to do? Where, where's his momentum going to come from? How is he going to gain votes? If he's already not winning in in the polls, I I, I don't know what he does to, to gain. Um, so that's that, that's going to be his problem. 
Um, I, I don't know what his plan or what his plan for the future is. And I think immigration is just killing him, killing him, killing him, killing him. All right. Unfortunately, we have to wrap it up there. Let me thank my uh, guest, uh, pollster Doug Kaplan. And folks, uh, this has been The Roger Stone Show. Please hang on for my good friend, Joe Piscopo, who's going to be right up with Sundays with Sinatra.